This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Sean Caston, Democratic nominee for Congress in Illinois 6th. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your primary. Thank you very much. Uh, it seems like a long time ago, but I appreciate it. Yeah, so you won your primary with about 30% of the vote in a very hotly contested seven-way race. What was that experience like and what did it teach you going into the general election? Um, so that the, I've never run, I never even ran for student body government before. So I, you know, I knew going in that um, I had sort of a naive view of politics and then the real view of politics. The naive view, which I still kind of hold, is that if you tell people what you believe in and what your values are, um, and they don't vote for you, then you're the wrong representative for the district. If they do, you're the right one for the district. And that's very different from saying, I want to know what you think I should support. There are some politicians who take latter approach, it's not mine. And that basically felt pretty good, and, you know, obviously I won, so it's, you know, the ends justify the means. You know, I think as against that, one of the things that I learned which was sort of um, more distressing is that I think the positive side of all of this energy going on nationally is that a lot of people are stepping up and running. The negative side is that it's it's just hard to get the voters' attention in a very crowded race. And the the result of that is that I had, you know, because I had because I had, had you know run a company and sold it and had a little bit of financial success, I had the ability to tell my story a little bit louder than others. And, you know, there were some really good people. I had a lot of respect. Everybody I ran against was a good person. But the difference between between our competence was narrower than you would think from the voting results. It had more to do with who had, who had the resources to speak loudly. And there's probably a conversation to be had there about campaign finance, and obviously I'm happy with where it ended. But particularly in crowded primaries, I do find myself wondering whether the voters get the amount of education that you'd like them to have. You have been very critical of Donald Trump, so much so that it's put you in the national spotlight. Your district did go to Hillary Clinton in 2016, but it's considered leaning slightly Republican. What are your criticisms of Donald Trump, and why is it important to express them? How many weeks do you have for the first question? <laughs> a few weeks before the election, I guess. Only a few. Um... Um, no, I mean, I have, I mean, there's, it's hard to find anything positive about Trump. The, you know, the answer of why I think it's important to express goes back to what I said in response to your first question. I think, number one, I don't want a job where I have to be anything less than honest, because I don't want to have to think at 11 o'clock at night if we're voting on something and it's, you know, a compromise on page 300 of the bill, that I've got to try to figure out whether whether the voters are guessing about what my values are. 
The second reason, though, is that I, I believe pretty strongly in the principle of noblesse oblige, you know, to, to he or she whom much is given, much is expected. And if you have some modicum of a public podium, and if you see the kind of, of, of demagoguery and assaults on all that is good and righteous and true in America in this country from the president, and you don't speak up, shame on you. Um, because, you know, the arc of history doesn't bend towards justice because good people sat down and just waited for it. You got to get up and push and lean on it. And, and, you know, and if people, if people want a representative who sits down and is a rubber stamp for Trump, they've got that already. That ain't me. So what would you do in Congress to oppose the Trump agenda? The, the first answer and the most honest answer is that we've got to get democratic control back. Because as a freshman member of Congress, there's, you know, there's, there's limitations on what you can do. You can certainly use the media. You can certainly call things out. There's a whole bunch of votes that I would take, which would be in many ways very similar with what, you know, my Democratic colleagues have taken. But if you don't have the majority, it's hard to set the agenda. So, for example, there was a bill um, that was trying to get through the Ways and Means Committee that would have compelled the president to release his tax returns so that we would know whether he is financially conflicted from doing his job. That bill was blocked from coming to the floor on a straight party line vote in the Ways and Means Committee. You have a party line vote in the Ways and Means Committee because when when the Republicans control the majority, the party line vote will always tilt in the favor of the Republicans. That should not be a partisan issue to know whether the President of the United States is conflicted by a foreign power, and yet we live in a world where that's become the case. Um, there are votes that could be taken to absolutely unequivocally protect, protect the Mueller investigation. Those votes haven't been taken, and so now we have to sit here talking about what we would do as a society if the president were to fire Robert Mueller, but Congress has it within their power to prevent him from doing that. Um, and, and then, of course, there's a whole number of other things that I think are more about setting a positive agenda. We, we should be doing something about climate change, and we should pass those bills and then put it on the president's desk you know, for him to sign, not sit there and say, you know, we're going to wait for the president to dictate the agenda. We, we could pass bills that reaffirmed our commitment to the post-World War II order and all the things that you know, have made the world safe for the last 70 years instead of sitting quietly while he rips up NATO. You could go on and on down the list, but Congress, it is a co-equal branch of government. It has the ability to lead. It just currently lacks leaders. So one of the areas where Democrats have stood with Trump is military spending. Just recently, Democrats voted unanimously for a $607 billion military budget in the Senate, would you imagine yourself supporting similar military budgets and other Trump legislation in the House? Well, you know, number one, I would, I would caution a little bit about describing any group of people as being members of one team or another team. There's a tremendous amount of diversity within the Democratic Party. I wish I could say there was diversity in the Republican Party, but... Um, but I, I, I just would caution you against describing all Democrats the same way. Um, with respect to military spending in general, I have, you know, I have, I have two thoughts that, are, that may sound like they're in conflict, but I don't think they are. The first is that 
I am absolutely a proponent of the United States being the world's sole superpower, which means um, investing in the resources and the military and the tools that enable that to happen. And by the way, one of those tools is diplomacy. Um, you know, at its best, the State Department is you know a way we also can advance our agenda without without the threat of killing people. Um, I think as against that. Um, I am generally not a proponent of using our military unless we have to. And a huge amount of the current expense that the military spends is, is actually using all those weapons we've been building because we're, you know, we're coming up on 20 years in a war on terror that has no way to ever end as it's framed because it has no defined end state and objective. And I'm absolutely supportive of the the measures that, uh, that both Tim Kaine and Jeff Flake have supported to rescind the authorization to use military force that was granted after 9-11, because that's basically become a blank checkbook for the, for the trillions of dollars we've spent in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we can cut way back on that, save a lot of money from the military without necessarily saying that we don't still want to have a, a good, strong, well-trained, well-armed military. Um, to be a force for for our values um, in the world. That doesn't say we just you know proceed unilaterally, but what we lead with our values, I think I think we're a force for good in the world. How would you describe your foreign policy vision? Well, I you know my general view on overall foreign policy is that I think the you know, if, if you think of the Marshall Plan generally, and I, I sort of as a stereotype, I'm not saying the Marshall Plan in the specifics, but as a stereotype, the, the world was broken after World War II. And there were questions about whether, you know, equality and opportunity and traditionally democratic values were going to be ascendant or whether, you know, you know which side of the Cold War you were on, whether the values of... of you know, the Soviet Union or what became the Soviet Union were going to be ascendant. And I think the, our commitment, our, our, when I say our, I mean all of us on this planet, our commitment, at least directionally, to democracy, to equality of opportunity, to free and fair elections, to, um, you know, all the things that come with that, to education, um, that would not have happened without a, a very moral and forceful United States leadership at the helm. I had a, I had a, a colleague who was a, a, uh, an ambassador from Romania, and this sounds better in a Romanian accent, which I like to garble, but he said, he said to me about 10 years ago, he said, you got to understand from the perspective of Romania, the United States, it is a bully. It is the nicest bully the world has ever known, but it's a bully. And I always thought it was a good description from that part of the world because he's sitting there saying, we don't always like that you tell us what to do, but we respect the fact that you do it from a position of values. And we may not always like that trade-off. And there's some real politic challenges that come if you say, are we going to, you know, do we advance our values in Europe to advance the spread of democracy, but do we you know, do we look the other way when there's a despotic regime in a country that we're not economically connected to? And yeah, we've, we've made some mistakes along the way. I'm not saying we're perfect. But 
what we are seeing right now in sort of the, not just the Trump, but the neocon John Bolton view of the world, that essentially espouses a foreign policy based, as far as I can tell, on on nothing more thoughtful than always reserving the right of the U.S. to act unilaterally in our naked self-interest without a values-led agenda at the helm. Number one, that that completely loses our credibility on the world stage. Because now my friend from Romania is not saying we're a nice bully, he's just saying we're a bully. But number two, when we step back from that world stage, um, nature abhors a vacuum. Someone else is going to step in there. And if you look at what China is doing in the world right now, in the Trump era where we are stepping back from those, those you know, those diplomatic and, you know, and other engagements and economic engagements we used to be involved in. China's rushing in and China is, China is, you know, nakedly focused on their own self-interest in a very mercantilist way. And I don't think that is a recipe for the kind of world we want to live in. Um, but when we step back, they step in. And I don't, I don't know if I'm answering your question, because some of that gets to military, some of that gets to diplomacy, some of that gets to trade policy, but these things are all part of a whole. So along the lines of this subject, in a, in a different sense, would you consider climate change to be a national security threat? Um, I would consider climate change to be central to virtually every challenge we face right now. Um, the, and, and by the way, when I say that, you know, Department of Defense and Department of State have both said that climate change is the biggest long-term threat to national security. Um, when, you have, when you have crop failures in northern Africa leading to refugee crises, and people talk about that as you know, somehow because of the character of the people in North Africa, they are completely misreading the situation. And if you think about what happens in a world where Himalayan glaciers start to shrink and rivers that, that you know, provide the water and food for a third of the global population, that's massive instability that happens if that, if that changes. And, and you know, none of the trend lines are good. Um, but climate change at core is also an economic issue and not an economic issue in the way that the Republican Party talks about it. You cannot reduce CO2 emissions without reducing fossil fuel combustion. And since nobody gives away fossil fuel for free, that means you cannot reduce CO2 emissions without saving money. It is a massive economic growth opportunity and job creation. And I, and I know that from experience. I spent 16 years building and running companies that had missions to profitably reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I, have, I built 80 power plants. Not a single one of them was less than twice as fuel efficient as the U.S. power grid. And there's a lot more opportunity out there. And so there really is no trade-off between being good stewards of the planet and being good stewards of our pocketbook and advancing national security. The, the barrier is just that our political conversation has, has been dominated by personalities who insist on looking at a win-win and turning it into a win-lose negotiation. So recently, Data for Progress released a comprehensive study on what they call a Green New Deal. One interesting proposal they explored was a federal job guarantee, which has about 70% support in your state 
and narrowing that down to a green job guarantee. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that specific proposal and what you would do at large to support a 100% renewable energy economy. Well, you guys are probably not going to like my answer. We have got to get the CO2 down as quickly as possible. We have got to create good paying jobs um, across the whole skill level. And those two things do not necessarily always fit together. And, and, and so I think, I think they pull well in large part because people don't quite understand how they fit together. And, and I got to tell you a little bit about my, my experience here. I have built, I've built gas plants. I've built geothermal plants. I've built biomass plants. I've converted coal plants to gas. Um, all of them have been efficient. The, if I put a solar panel on the roof of my house, I will not hire an operator to run that solar panel. If I put solar panels on the roof of 100,000 houses, I won't hire a single operator to run those 100,000 solar panels. But I will shut down a coal plant. And that coal plant that I shut down will probably have about 100, 200 employees. And there's no a part of the reason why solar and wind and geothermal and these other technologies are so attractive to investors is because they have no marginal cost. They have no fuel cost. They also don't really require much labor to run. They absolutely require jobs to build. And there's going to be a pulse of construction that's there. But the conversion to a, to a renewable economy and a clean economy that we all want to live in is in many ways analogous to, to the advances from, you know, our iPhones and me sitting here having this conversation with you with, you know, with, with no switchboard operator monitoring the calls, right? We've advances in technology over the last 50, 60, 100 years have almost always been driven by increases in labor productivity, which means that you have fewer units of labor per unit of economic activity. And there are, seen from one perspective, that could be pretty positive, right? Because we have more wealth per capita than we used to. But from another perspective, that means that the wealth is concentrated among those who own the, own the robots, if you will, and is lost to people who lose their jobs. And I think that I, I think that when politicians lump, lump the green jobs together because it pulls well, they're not doing their voters a service to acknowledge that we need to look at both sides of productivity enhancement. Um, and, and while it's great to improve productivity and why we should absolutely want clean and green energy, we have to deal with the fact that that means a lot less labor per unit of energy and not just sort of not basically tell just so stories about how these are going to create jobs. Um, on the other side of your question with respect to 100% renewable world, it's not possible. Um, we should push as close to it as possible and as fast to it as possible. But, you know, as a, for example, you cannot make pure silicon that you need to run a solar panel without coal. It's chemically impossible. You can't make a solar panel without steel, which you also can't make without coal. You can't make plastics without fossil fuels. Now, we should be working to push all of those things down, but what we need is an economy that is as, as, as efficient and as clean as possible. And, and if, if you can sit there, 
you know, as I'm a chemical engineer by training, so forgive me for being nerdy. But if you sit there and look at the thermodynamics and say 100% is impossible, let's not let's not set goals that pull well, but but not deal with it. Let's recognize the fact that we are going to need some fossil fuel inputs for those for the kind of world we want to live in. But let's absolutely push as hard as we can to get the get the carbon down as quickly as possible. So the International Trade Union Confederation estimates that spending two percent of annual GDP on the green economy could create over 15 million green jobs in five years. Would you support that spending rate? Yeah, absolutely. But as what I said before, the the barrier to clean energy is not money or technology. It's political will. Um, it, the David Roberts at Grist, who's a very good friend of mine, I don't know if you've read his stuff, he went on, I think it's the report you're referring to, he went on this, this Twitter rant last week, which I think was spot on, and he said, you know, here's this analysis done that says we can save $27 trillion by converting to clean energy globally. And, and his Twitter rant was he said, the same story gets written every two years, and it's always written as being insightful. And nobody writes the story that says the problem is, is our politics, and we have to fix our politics. I'll, I'll give you just a crazy example of, of how this has come to bear in the United States recently. Um, for... For decades, it has been an article of faith amongst those in the electricity industry that the United States power grid, uh, every every megawatt hour of electricity you consume releases about 1,300 pounds of CO2. And that's been true. That's about what the grid mix is. And it's also been an article of faith that anything you would do to reduce that will cost too much money. Witness all the climate bills we didn't sign. With the with the changes that have happened in the grid in the last 10 years, that has fallen to 975 pounds a megawatt hour. So that is a uh, almost a 30% reduction in the CO2 intensity of the grid. And while we've done that, the price of power has fallen. That's been done in spite of our policies. It's been done because people were greedy. Because given the choice between expensive power and cheap power, people pick cheap power every time. And we would have done that much faster if we had the political will. And we now have big challenges on the electric grid because we've deployed renewable energy so quickly that there are parts of the grid where there's, there's too much generation that doesn't dispatch off. And you've got utilities who are doing things, and this sounds insane, but it's happening all over the country. People are putting in gas turbines, running them at half load where they are very inefficient, so that they can quickly ramp up and ramp down to changes in the output of solar and wind turbines. That basically means that we have failed to invest in the transmission necessary to move clean energy around to where it's needed, and it's what we would have been doing with political will. So the, and I'm, I'm sorry if I'm getting too complicated in the weeds, but your question, I, I think, was about should we invest in bringing clean energy forward? And the answer is absolutely yes, but we got to realize that because clean energy is so economic, markets will provide that in the absence of government investment, so long as markets fix the fix the inherent barrier, which in this example was we needed to build more transition transmission, or we needed to allow people to be paid for the external values that they create in the system, which is, requires modifying electricity markets. Um, 
we could spend a long time talking about those things, but the, but the what's needed is the politics, not not the money, because it's it's inherently economically beneficial to build that. Markets will, markets will do that if if government policy will get out of the way. And if this is a problem with our politics, what could you do in Congress to change this political culture? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to take an active measure to fire a guy who currently holds the job I'm trying to take, who says that climate change is junk science. Um, I mean, the way the way this changes is you elect people who understand these issues and and who make decisions based on the facts as they are, not the facts as they wish that they would be. Um, if we get that in, we'll make a lot of advances. I think the challenge is that there's a there's a thirst for bipartisanship in politics. And I and man do I share that thirst, right? I mean it's it's no fun to sit there and watch a show where, where one side yells at the other one and the other one yells at the other one. I mean, it's like a it's like the world's worst drama. There's no there's no narrative arc that ends in a in a, in a big hug scene at the end, right? Um but the points where the real meaningful conflicts are are not areas for compromise. If I say we got to do something about climate change and you say climate change isn't real, I'm not going to compromise with you. I'm going to accept that on this issue, you're just really dumb. If, if, I, if I say we need to provide you know, equality of opportunity at the ballot box and you say, no, I, I think we need to go disenfranchise brown people because they don't vote for me, that's not an area for compromise. And, you know, that may sound sort of fatalistic, but my view is that the way we get back to a healthy body politic that has the kind of compromise we used to have is a massive Democratic victory in 2018 and in 2020. Because if the Republican Party loses by a big enough margin, they will have to change, they'll have to confront the fact that they have been become so aggressively polarized to the right in, in areas that just don't allow room for compromise. If it's a small margin of victory, you're going to have a lot of people saying, well, you know, if I, if I can get out my voters a little bit better, maybe I'll win next time, but I don't have to reexamine my values. But it is, it is a values issue at the end of the day. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. 
So I'm glad you brought up voting rights because voter suppression is one of the greatest threats to our democracy. It disproportionately affects poor people, black people. Unfortunately, there's a lot of crossover. So I'm curious, what proposals do you have to ensure that all Americans can vote? The I think there are some there are some good proposals that are out there. What what I find frustrating as a as a first time candidate is that so many of the proposals that are out there almost seem to be playing defense rather than offense. You know, we had we had the Voting Rights Act, which wasn't perfect, but it at least articulates back to our foreign policy conversation, right? It articulated a set of values that good people should. And you know, and if we've learned nothing from, you know, some of the, you know, Shelby versus Holder and some of those recent decisions, it's that we still desperately need those protections. But at this point, we have to, we have to reimpose protections that used to be there that were taken away. Um, the, you know, I think there's a lot of things that would be, that we should do. Um, you know, we should make sure that nobody, everybody has equal access to a polling place. We should. Um, I'd love to see us make make election day a national holiday, so that it doesn't it isn't harder to vote if you are shorter on income and need to work. Uh, expanding vote by mail would be great for that as well. Uh, the one of my one of my favorite proposals that I the uh, um, that I, I liked it so much that I, I threw it on my website and said I'll do this if elected is lowering the voting age to sixteen and. The whole logic of that is that the when you're when you're the first year you're eligible to vote tends to correspond to the first year that you're living out on your own and sometimes in a new area. It's a bit of an inconvenience to vote, but demographically, the most reliable voter is a 50 to 75 year old woman. And when you turn 16, you're probably living with a 50 to 75 year old woman. <laughs> and, yeah. No, you're not wrong there. <laughs> And so you would be in a situation where, you know, you'd, you'd create a culture of voting younger, which I think is just a brilliant idea. And especially in states like Illinois, where I am, where, you know, we've now got motor voter rules. If you're eligible to drive, you go pick up your first driver's license. Wouldn't it be good if you got your voter registration the same day? Um, and, you know, all those things, you know, I think any trend, any legislation that increases the franchise and makes it easier for people to vote is completely consistent with the values of a lowercase d democracy. And unfortunately, we are also in a world where anything that we do to increase the franchise um, is good for the interests of capital D Democrats. And, and so it's back to the question before about this sort of asymmetric polarization of politics that there is one party actively working to take away the franchise, and with solid democratic majorities, hopefully we can go beyond just the defensive measures to, you know, to more positive views of what that would mean. But it's, but even on the positive side, I mean, what you're really trying to do is just to create. I don't want to say create the government our founders intended, because they had some disenfranchisement ideas of their own, but at least the idea that our founders intended, if they were, if they were more color and gender blind. So voting rights were a key part of the recent nationwide prison strike. Demand number 10 of the strike reads, quote, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called, quote unquote, ex-felons must be counted, representation is demanded, all voices count, end quote. 
So to add some data to this, the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center found that allowing people convicted of felonies to fully re-enter society after they serve their sentence decreases recidivism and not allowing them to do so affects not only them but the people around them. It decreases voter participation with those close to them. And of course this is a racial justice problem as you mentioned, about 70% of individuals in prison in the United States are people of color, even though people of color only make up 25% of the United States population. Would you say that you agree with demand number 10 of the strike? Um, certainly as you characterize it, it makes a ton of sense. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, there's a, there's a couple things in there that I think are, are maybe even deeper. Maybe you guys are already aware of this. Um, the first is that congressional districts are allocated based on the number of people. Not the number of citizens, not the number of voting age citizens, the number of people. When you put a prison, which are typically in rural areas, and you take away those prisoners' right to vote, you, you over-enfranchise the population of that district because that district ends up counting all those prisoners in the census count that dictate the size of, the, of, the, of the, where the congressional districts lie. But, you know, if you've got a, if you've got a 50,000 person prison in a 735,000 person congressional district, that means that you really only have 680,000 people relative to the district next door that's got more people. So you, you, you disproportionately weight the power of the country towards those rural districts that have prisons. And the second thing that happens, which is in many ways even worse, and I think, I think the NAACP has been kind of a leading voice for this, but they, they're still, they haven't got it solved yet, is that when the census is done, you know, meaning, you know, after the 10-year block and all the numbers are complete, the allocation of federal money flows based on where the population is. And so watch what happens if you are a, um, you know, a, you know, a, a inner city black person, black male probably, who's convicted of a crime sent out of your urban area to a rural prison. If you're in that prison when the census is counted, and maybe, you know, maybe this is a minor crime, maybe you're in there for, you know, for 12 months. The money that was associated with you as an individual now flows to that rural district for the next 10 years. 12 months later, you move back to your home and where your home is, is now getting fewer federal dollars because according to the census, that's not where you are. And it creates this massive disparity that feeds this, you know, it's one of many things that feeds to this cycle of, of the, you know, prison to prison cycle, right? Because you come back, there's fewer federal dollars in your district, which means there's fewer opportunities, which means you've got, you know, more incentive or temptation to get back into a life of crime and all of a sudden you're back in the system. Um, what the NAACP has been pushing for is to tag those individuals to make sure that the, that the, that the, the federal dollar flow allocates in real time, and they haven't got it done yet. Um, but it goes, my point is just it goes beyond just the voting rights for felons, which is a part of it, um, um, or even people convicted of misdemeanors. I mean, if you're in prison, um, you know, it, it, basically all the things you're saying and more. Along these lines, do you support the decriminalization of marijuana? Um, I absolutely support decriminalization. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about full legalization. And the reason primarily is because I'm a nerd. Um, because marijuana is a Schedule One narcotic, 
the there hasn't really been any real research done on the impacts of marijuana, you know, on the developing brain, cross use with other medications. And I'm a little bit nervous about all of a sudden opening up the marketing of marijuana to, you know, big food, big pharma, whoever's gonna jump on top of that without doing more research. But absolutely and totally support decriminalization. Number one, just to just to empty out the prisons of all these low level drug offenders. And oh by the way, you know, have a side benefit of no longer prosecuting black men for things that white men seem to get away with all the time. Um, but um, but also to recognize that you know at the end of the day, and marijuana is maybe a bad example for this, but but I think in general, um, substance abuse and addiction is is a is a is a health issue and should be treated as such. When we treat it as a criminal issue, we don't get people the health treatment that they need. And and so we never really solve the problem. Another very racialized issue, a criminalized issue, is immigration. So I was quite happy to see you address that pretty explicitly on your site. On your immigration policy page, you very astutely say, quote, for most of U.S. history, our immigration policy has been biased towards a national origin-based preference system tending to favor immigration from countries who, quote-unquote, look like us, end quote. Now, with that, I'd like to go back to the origin of what's happening now, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which is what criminalized undocumented status and put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a very quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the 1892 Fong Yu Ting case, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends, and business and property, and sent across the ocean to a distant land as punishment, and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. Would you agree with this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? Well, you're going to give me a history lesson there. What, what you said certainly sounds <laughs> my, my favorite thing the, to do. The, um, I, I have to confess that I have not read the Chinese Exclusion Act, nor that dissent. Um, it's, certainly, you know, it's certainly not a piece of our history that I'm proud of, and what you're describing sounds reasonable. Um, the one piece that I think you're mistaken on, um, I'm not sure you could say that, that this was the first act of our immigration policy, because strictly speaking, I don't think we had any immigration limits prior to the 20s or so. It, the Chinese Exclusion Act was this weird anomaly where we had people we said couldn't come, but you know we didn't really set limits in any practical way who could come here until the 20s. Um, but, you know, but directionally, I um, you know, the spirit of what you're, what you're reading sure sounds like it makes a lot of sense. What would you do in Congress to support the undocumented community and decriminalize migration? Well, first of all, thank you for using the word undocumented instead of illegal, because it's a better word and it's more accurate. Um, there's a handful of things that we should do. I mean, I, you know, we, we should pass full comprehensive immigration reform, which is a longer conversation. Unfortunately, we've gotten to a world where, because we failed so miserably at that 10 years ago, we have a lot of patches. Um, we, 
we absolutely should, you know, protect and restore DACA and ideally get a full DREAM Act so that you've got you've got protection for dreamers that's that's affirmed by the Congress and the executive branch, not just an executive order that's, you know, become sort of, you know, taken away by a president who's racist and restored by a decent one, hopefully, or vice versa in recent history. Um, but, you know, that's, that's almost the least we can do because what, you know, there's a handful of things that I think we've, we've, we really need to address. Number one, um, as you mentioned, national origin is just a terrible way to prioritize. We have, at any given point in our in our history or our present or our future, we have a mix of jobs and skills that the economy needs, and a mix of jobs and skills that are provided by the native-born population, and they never match exactly. And our immigration policy historically has served to, you know, to fix fix those imbalances. Um, if we threw out national origin and replaced it with something that said, where are the imbalances in society? And let's preferentially attract and provide visas and stability to people who bring those sets of skills. And I, and I got to be careful with the word skills because that doesn't necessarily mean high skilled. Um, we actually, you know, if you look at job creation in the U S in the last 30 years, um, we've created more low skilled jobs than we have low skilled people. Um, Unfortunately, we've also failed to create a lot of medium-skilled jobs. You've got a lot of a lot of people in underemployment situations, but immigration can solve the problems all across the skill level. So, going to a skills-based system would be good. Um, but the we need to not lose sight of the fact that we have always, always, always benefited from <clears throat> being a country that was biased in favor of refugee resettlement and family reunification because when you tell somebody from a foreign country that they if they come here they will have they will have opportunities to excel and exceed and accomplish that they don't have in their home country um we're the better for it we're the richer for it because we benefit from their talents um and you know what is a refugee looking to resettle here other than somebody who believes that they have more opportunities and protection and safety in our country than they would where they're in their home country. Um, we've not been perfect at it. We should do more at it, but skills is not an exchange for that. The other thing that I think structurally we don't talk about enough but should is that the, the number of visas we allocate every year doesn't change very much year to year, but the economy grows and the population grows. And so what ends up happening for in a lot of sectors of the economy is let's say you're a business who um, who has one of these needs of skills that has historically relied on, on some immigrant community to fill gaps in the native-born population. And now let's say your business grows. When that visa pool doesn't grow, it puts you in a horrible position as a business owner because you're saying, what I need to grow I'm having a harder and harder time finding internally. I've historically met that through immigration. And, and, but for me to continue to do that, there's no legal way to comply. And, you know, the narrative becomes, well, this employer is horrible. Why aren't they working to, you know, to hire more native born people? And we can have that conversation. But from a purely mathematical perspective, if you're not at least growing the visa pool with the economy, 
you're not keeping up with the needs that all those that all those employers have. And so just doing doing what seems sort of mathematically obvious from a distance, I think would go a long way towards eliminating a lot of the tension where, you know, now you have people coming over on short duration work visas that end up staying longer and now all of a sudden their visa status has expired and they've slipped into this, you know, undocumented regime and, and all that comes out of that, which is really a function of a of a policy environment that didn't need to create that problem, but it did. Should undocumented status be decriminalized? What role should the federal government have in immigration? Um, I think that's probably, it's probably too broad a generalization to say that undocumented status should be decriminalized because there's a lot of different flavors of undocumented status. There are, there are the completely benign versions of undocumented status. You are you came here on a student visa, you went to school, you're talking with an employer, you think they're going to sponsor you to get a, um, you know, to get a different visa status, but you don't quite get the paperwork done in time, and now you've got a gap in your coverage. That person is undocumented. That person shouldn't be treated like a criminal, um, but they are technically undocumented. Similarly, you know, you've, you're, you've got a, you got a child who's legally in the United States, you're in another country, you, your, your child becomes a parent for the first time. You want to come over because you're a loving parent. You want to help them out through their childbirth. There's some complications. Your tourist visa expires, but you're still a loving parent. You're going to stick around. That person's undocumented. That's not a criminal. It's, it's a loving parent. Um, as against that, you know, they're a small number, but, you know, but there are bad people who would like to come into the country. There are, you know, there are human traffickers who come across the border and, and, you know, and, and we want to keep those people out. Those people are also undocumented. And there's a different set of law enforcement tools we should bring to bear on those. So I think it's, I, I think it's safe to say that we should not assume that all undocumented people are criminals. And it's why, it's why I thanked you at the start for saying, thank you for saying undocumented and not illegal. But that's not to say that every undocumented person um, is a saint. So lots to discuss here, but for the sake of time, we do have to wrap up. So I thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, and we hope to follow up with you after you win in November. Thank you very much, Jordan. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking to you. Of course. Thanks for coming on. Now, lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.